As a poet, if you cooperate with language, you end up saying things you didn't know you were thinking. So claims the multi-award winning poet Rachel Boast in this interview with Susanna V. Evans. But although poetry may emerge from somewhere unconscious, the course of their conversation draws to the surface Rachel Boast's life and works, highlighting the biographical background to some of her poetry, its close affinity with music and sound, and how her breakthrough came after living in a crofter's cottage with just a copy of Geoffrey Hill for company. This podcast, recorded at Stanza in 2018, is brought to you by the Department of English Studies at Durham University. I wanted to start by thinking that you know, you've had these prizes for sort of Best First Collection for Forward and, and um, the Shane Sini First Collection Prize. Um, so I think your first, I was wondering when you first started writing? Ah, that's easy enough. Yeah. I was uh, 14. A lot of uh, young people do write the occasional bit of poetry at that, at that age, which yeah. uh, doesn't really need explaining. Yeah. Uh, I just carried on. I just yeah. found eventually that it was fulfilling some vital function for me mm-hmm. and was a way of clarifying what was going on in my own mind and until it got to a point where it was more than that <clears throat> it was I started to realize that language had this incredible otherness to it and wanted to sort of see what was on the other side of that mm-hmm. if you like mm-hmm. that it had its own logic its own rhythms and if I yeah. followed those I would end up saying things I didn't even know I thought mm. That's very interesting. Yeah, I want, I want to ask you about language and going beyond language, maybe a bit later, but first of all, I wanted to ask you about sound. And so your poem, Blind Date, talks about sonic architecture, which is a phrase I really like. Um, and many of your poems are quite closely attuned to listening. So for example, in mm-hmm. Pinnacles, think about all the different sounds that rain against the tent could could be. And in rainbow weather, boats are incanting a sound strangely of this world. And I was wondering how consciously and closely you listen to the world and attempt to reconstruct that in poetry. There's this well-known phrase that the world is sound. I remember a friend of mine who was very chronically deaf Mm. uh, had the most wonderful way with words precisely because he had to listen so hard. Mm. And he would almost enter into a, 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 a different sort of reality that was made of sound and made of language. And that suggests that if we cooperate with, with, the, with the act of listening and with patterns of sound and sound patterns inherent in language, as a poet, as a, as a practitioner, you end up saying things you didn't know you were thinking. And... If you cooperate with that way of writing, it's not about what you want to say. Mm. It's about how the patternings of sound suggest things to you. So part of the process for me is getting out of the way of my own intentions Mm. and allowing the sounds of the world to come in and tell me Mm. what the world is like. So when you're composing or writing poems... Do you actively listen? Do you, do you ever read them aloud or, you know, test them 
in a kind of acoustic way. I, I don't actually. I know a lot of people do do that, but it's yeah. more an internal listening. Yeah. It's not that I'll go around, you know, actively saying things aloud. Mm. And, you know, quite often I don't read the poems back to myself. But I can hear them at a level which is sufficient enough mm. where I know that the patternings are working or I know that something's slightly askew and doesn't seem right. So I've got a very vivid kind of sense of sound in my head. Mm. It's not actually externalised. Mm. I know a lot of people do do that and it and it, it is advocated people like John Burnside actually go for long walks and they're composing as they're going along you know whether that's in their head or whether they're saying it aloud yeah. but I don't do that I mean what I find very strange for me is so much of it happens on an unconscious level it's like I'm you know just an instrument for the language yeah. and the fact that I've been doing it so long yeah. I think just reconfigures your brain so that you kind of automatically it's a training mm -hmm. I mean musicians will talk about the hundred thousand hours you've got to put into practicing the violin and becoming virtuoso about mm. it it's the same with poetry mm. the more you do it you'll end up coming to a certain threshold and mm. then it's just like it just happens mm. And, and I wanted actually to, to go back to the poem Blind Date, and, and you mention in the poem a love of words, this is a quote, a love of words that coincide their beauty and their bite. And I, I just wondered if you had a favourite word in English or another language, or whether you could give an example of a word that in your mind coincides beauty and bite. <gasps> My God, that's quite a question. <laughs> yeah. oh, I don't know, it would probably be... French, a French word. Yeah. I, I do love the French language, mm, partly because mm, I don't kind of fully mm, understand what I'm reading. Mm. Uh, I'm also quite fond of certain Hebrew words and mm. the kind of uh, kind of real throaty sound. It's quite visceral mm. and quite bodily. Mm. Yeah, I, I do remember that. I remember writing that poem. It's literally true. Mm. Went on a most disastrous blind day. <laughs> And I realised escaped. I escaped all right, but the guy uh, who I was meeting was an architect, so oh, hence the, so the archi sonic yeah, architecture. Yeah, hence oh. that. Yeah, but the the actual sonic architecture mm. reference is actually literally this phrase. You know, the world is sound. Mm. Or okay, I studied I studied philosophy, and mm. when I was doing my undergraduate degree. <laughs> Although that wasn't quite the kind of philosophy I was looking for. And then I got into Buddhism and stuff. Mm. And then I got into various other things. Mm. And uh, I started to sort of think about... You know, the material world didn't seem to me to be adequately real enough. I mm. thought there was something behind this. Mm. That goes back to very old ideas. Uh, so go back to Swedenborg, for instance, and his theory of correspondences. Everything in the material world is a manifestation of a sound if you mm. like mm. hence you know a kind of Bud buddhist uh, tradition of mantra and certain certain uh, seed sounds and stuff that they use mm. and the, their calligraphy is absolutely beautiful so that's all kind of in my head as a mishmash behind some of these poems as well mm. so the idea of sonic architecture yeah, I mean, religious buildings were built on that principle that they were actually built as to contain sound in a certain way. Mm. And I think the poem can do the same thing. So a poem can be a mm. place you enter mm. into mm. 
that will change your idea <coughs> about what this so-called material world actually is. I mean, where the, what is this? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I do. So I'm afraid, you know, it's not very popular, but I do have kind of like esoteric sort of stuff going on in the mm. back of my head. I don't like to spell it out too much because it's not necessary. Yeah. But I'm really, really interested in that side of things. Um, and you, you have um, <clears throat> several sequences mm. of poems. Um, so I mentioned Tensmuir earlier, yeah. which is about a forest very close to here in northeast Fife, and the extra mile also in sidereal. And I mean, you could kind of consider void studies as a kind of sequence and as something yeah, where yeah, the poems yeah. are all of one. Um, yeah, that is a sequence. Yeah, I mean the the Tensmuir sequence. I was living out in a crofter's cottage. There was nothing to do. Uh, I was climbing the walls a little bit. I'd just started my inlet. And I went and got a copy of Geoffrey Hill's speech, speech. And I didn't understand a single word of it. But for some reason, it got me going. And I I realised I could cut away quite a lot of over literal language and and just that was the first time I think I really made a proper breakthrough in poetry mm. was being alone with Geoffrey Hill <laughs> in, <laughs> a, in a cottage and on the edge of the wood with no one mm. around and um, I, I just it was an amazing time it was a very hard time but it, it mm. was it was you know, a real breakthrough for mm. me to get that sequence going and I and it is a sort of template for void studies as well the extra mile poem is is I was writing that in parallel with my PhD which was on the book of Job um and and you know you, you've lived so you've lived in St Andrews mm. and you're now based in Bristol which is a city that I like very yeah, much it's a lovely um, place, yeah is is place something that's important in your writing yeah uh yes absolutely place um roots mm. um Earth. lineage a mm. sense of having a, a a family not just your own family but a, a family in in terms of poets as well and poets yeah. that you love and feeling a sense of belonging to a continuation of something mm. of a certain kind of tradition mm. yeah well my sort of uh, next question is uh, maybe not tradition but sort of how things kind of blend, bleed and blend into each other. Because I, I was um, going back and reading Sidereo, <clears throat> which I read for the first time many years ago. And Void Studies, obviously, I read more recently because it, it only came out, well, I guess, two years ago now. And to me, it seemed like a lot of the images in Sidereal anticipate Void Studies. So, for example, in, in Sidereal, you've got um, the poem the, the Hum, I think it's called. And you have images and mirrors and reflection and that seemed to be something that was very important in void studies as well and I was just wondering if if there is a sense that that the ideas are kind of traveling between collections or if earlier work is anticipating your later work or if that later work is growing from your earlier work it might be a case that I'm actually just writing the same (laughs) (laughs) and just trying to deepen it in some way or another I mean the mirror is a classic classic motif isn't it mm. it's a sort of threshold motif between right. worlds it's a liminal kind of motif and you know I quite like dwelling in that place that's that's just yeah. not Paris um but I had this idea not very long ago that it's one thing to look into a mirror mm. but it's another thing to go through it mm. and then I started to think well you could equate that with uh with narcissism so you get the image of narcissus 
looking at his own reflection. Well, that's kind of like not the end of the story. Perhaps he needed to go through the mirror and out the other side and then there wouldn't be that narcissism as we now call it. (laughs) So then, uh, you know, the egotist just sort of looks in the mirror but a poet will go through it Mm. and sort of drop themselves that comes back to getting out of the way mm. of you know mm. trying to cooperate with the with the work and with language and well with with void studies i reviewed it quite a while ago for the scores yeah. um and one of the things that i i wrote about and i thought about then was that there's something to me that's sort of erotic yeah, and and sort of an easy kind of sensuality yeah. and and even even in um Places like sidereal, and and this is this is not erotic, but but I find something quite sensual in it, where um, peace and plenty, and the speaker is this is a quote as well, um, charmed out of my socks and shoes, by soft spoken water, and and maybe it's just because I've seen the shape of water recently, which is quite erotic and to do with water. But to me, to me, there's something there's something sensual in that poem, but more so in poems like. Is it pronounced ranchera? Ranchera, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Where where the woman is, si- is singing, and and this is another quote, um, loosening herself up gradually, her body inhabiting the music. Yeah, and and to me, it's it seems like there's this kind of easy, almost lazy, languorous kind of sensuality in it, and I think that has something to do with the blurrings of it. You know how the poems kind of meld and run into each other, and you have all these images of snow, and they kind of carry between the poems. I think ironically, having, you know, I've got quite serious uh, physical problems, which which entails that my body is really physically uncomfortable. Because I can't fight it, I end up sort of going with it, and it, and it kind of gives you this, well, it, it gives me a certain sort of nonchalance, or a certain sort of, oh, yeah, fuck it, I can't do anything <laughs> about this. So I'll just go with it, and then... Uh, kind of ironically it actually makes me really comfortable mm. you know even though physically I might not be comfortable my sort of self as an as an entirety I'm you know actually quite laissez-faire it's really a strange combination mm. but mm. I, I feel relaxed and in, in myself I feel happy in my mm. body mm. I'm really shocked by the number of people who aren't comfortable in their, in their own skin when I obviously have got like an affliction which has to do with the skin. Mm. But because I've been up against it mm. and I've had no choice mm. but to deal with mm. that, it's actually made it easier yeah. to be in the world yeah. and to be naturally sensual if you want. Mm. But yeah, I'm sort of semi-aware of these images. <laughs> I'm not kind of, you've just flagged them up. But I'm not... Yeah. You know, so that is really interesting, but I'm sure it's something to do with, you know, if you've got nothing to lose, mm. then you can relax. Mm. And maybe maybe one last question, and then we'll move on to some poems. So, Void Studies is based on an idea never implemented by the French poet Humble, Arthur mm-hmm. Humble, and the French symbolists were trying to almost get beyond language and they used music in their yeah. mission. And I was just wondering about music and language in, in your poetry. Okay. Poetry is, is language put under so much pressure. It's put mm. it's pushed to the extreme of what, what can be said. So if you can get away from trying to sort of spell things out or literally say something and just go with the sounds and go with the music, 
you get to a whole new level of language. Uh, that, for me, is what the whole idea is. The, the thing about the Etude Neant project that Rambo had is actually he did write some of them. Mm. Uh, in my um, Collected Poems edition of Rambo, translated by Oliver Bernard, I can't get away from his translations now, he's the only one I can read, there's a section called Dernier Vert. Uh, now, mm. for some reason, I crossed that out and I wrote over the top of it, Etude Neant. I think I got that from reading a biography of Rambo by Graham Robb, mm. where he talks about this project that, there is evidence that Rambo was doing it because he talked to Verlaine about it and mm. said, I'm doing this thing. And if you look at some of those poems around that time, you can identify that there's a whole cluster of stuff which, which were étude néante. There is, um, I can't remember the French titles, there's Song of the Highest Tower, for example, O Seasons, O Shadows. Uh, ah, and there's another bunch... Uh, as it, there's, there are some etudes mm. they, he did start writing them I'm not quite sure what happened but I think possibly I think Verlaine got there first uh, with a book called Romance Sans Parole Sans yeah so it was like oh right you've done it okay yeah. uh, I'm going to have to switch track here yeah. this is just a theory and I think possibly <laughs> what happened is he then went into writing Les Illuminations mm. and abandoned that idea mm. But halfway through writing Void, Void Studies, which wasn't called Void Studies at the time, it was called something else. Halfway through writing it, things just, it was like the missing piece of the jigsaw. I suddenly remembered these poems and remembered how he was trying to say as little as possible mm. and just use suggestion to a really kind of white hot point. And it, and it wasn't about saying something, mm. not having something to say. Mm. He was trying to push beyond that and Les Illuminations would have been partly, you know, a kind of hybrid result, if you like. Mm. So there are some out there, but it's just that he didn't finish the book because mm. possibly Verlaine got there first. I don't know what <laughs> happened. It's not been recorded. Mm. But I, it, I was fascinated by it and also the the idea of the, the, the musical etude you know, it's, it's a beautiful, well, they're beautiful pieces of music. Debussy or, you know, Sati or whoever else. And the void aspect of it, I mean, Rambo was quite steeped in all sorts of traditions, which were quite popular at the time when, you know, in the 1870s in Paris, there were all sorts of interesting bookshops where, you know, he could read up about all sorts of mystical traditions mm. and... The idea of the neant goes way, way back, because Victor Hugo talked about that. Um, I won't go into it now, but, you know, that's, an, that's another story. He was following something up that was yeah. part of a, a long, long tradition yeah. in his adolescent way. He yeah. was uh, yeah. trying to do that, but abandoned it for whatever reason. Yeah. Well, I think that leads to a good poem reading okay. moment. So I've sort of kind of thought about a few. Um, so one of them um, I've chosen is, if you know, if that's okay, is um, yeah. is snow, because when I was reading through Void Studies when it first came out, well, actually, I read it in the snow um, because <laughs> it was when it snowed quite drastically in London, yeah. and it was great because um, I couldn't work because 
we were moving to a new office and, and I was just told to go to a cafe. So I, I took your book and I read it in the snow in this very nice French cafe oh, in, um, um, in London. And the snow was falling quite big flakes and I had a nice frothy cappuccino. <laughs> I, was, I was reading your book. And so, so I, yeah, I wondered if you could start with um, snow. Yeah, absolutely. As though it had waited all year in the wings of a sleep-eyed white angel to fall, and did so in an hour, assured of its own answerless light cast across the garden, while ice crystals melt from the bright lettering upheld in the trees overnight. Everything is lost to the river's deep lay, and to the low notes sustained in its shadows. The roads give and take nothing, and you can't get home, even though you're home. Mm. I remember reading that, and I think I think in the review, I, I, the last lines, they, they made me think of Robert Frost. Miles to go before you sleep, and miles uh, to go before you sleep. Yes. Um, it's funny you should mention Robert Frost, because actually... I've got a Frost poem that's stuck in my head for good, and the uh, he was one of the first poets I ever read, mm-hmm. only because I'd watched this film when I was about 15, The Outsiders, mm-hmm. you know, with the Brat Pack in it. Do you know that film? Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely mm-hmm. wonderful. And there's a Robert Frost poem in there, uh, it's absolutely beautiful. It's, Nature's first green is gold, her hardest hue to hold, her early leaves of flower, but only so an hour. So leaf subsides to leaf, so Eden sank to grief, so dawn goes down to day, nothing gold can stay. Nice. <laughs> and I'd, I'd chosen peonies for you mm. to read, but actually, I'm going to change my mind. Okay. <laughs> and because we've been talking about ranchera, I've, I've actually written on my copy of your book, Liquidity, Fluidity, and it's, and it's one that talks about, well, it actually uses the phrase beyond language, and it has uh-huh. images of mirrors and music, so I think this would actually be a really good one to read. Uh, ranchero is a particular form of music, musical singing, where where the woman imitates what the man would be saying, only he's too drunk to say it. Ranchero. She'll sing as if having downed more than one glass of strong wine, and loosening herself up gradually becomes ventriloquist of his love of amusing her with his Spanish silence. She sings in her slow, delayed tempo, wearing his tattered bird costume, her voice an offering to the sky, her body inhabiting the music of its dark interiority as the strength of her tongue pushes beyond language and hunger. All night, she glides like a swallow over a mirror of water. He watches her, his ranchera, in his sleep. And um, maybe just to close, to go Mm. back to sidereal. So attic. Um, I'm living in a little attic room at the moment. Mm. And Jules Lefort, the poet who I'm looking at in my academic work, lived in lots of attic rooms because they were cheaper and I find that a bit romantic, but obviously it's not romantic because he can afford to... It's tough, yeah. But I, you know, I think there's something... So here's Attic. My head bowed under the rafters. I make a start in the Attic's advantage. The lowered lamp, the cushion deleting the daylight. 
but I'm given to climbing out onto the flat roof, leaving my papers, my books, the closed doors and closed windows for those dark sayings that have no hinges to swing towards what they mean, and so are more like song, more necessary. I'd rise like this, day after day, above the strain of hard angles, servants' quarters, clarifying the openness of your face, love, and this generous sky. Thank you. And thank you for speaking with me. Pleasure. <laughs> we hope you have enjoyed this podcast. If you would like to comment on the podcast you have just listened to, or if you want to download more of our podcasts, visit our blog at www.readdurhamenglish.wordpress.com.